Can you believe that it's already Christmas that we're here? It, it, does anybody else seem like, like we just did Thanksgiving and we were just gearing up for this? Um, we have one of those things in our living room. It looks like a little truck and it has the dates and it's kind of, a, you know, you mark every day, you move it one day closer to Christmas. And it seems like sometimes we were just skipping like three and four days at a time. It just went by so quickly. So this week, I went back to my hometown in Appalachia um, for the first time in about a year. Before that, I hadn't been there probably in almost a decade. Uh, my, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, passed away at the age of 93. Um, lived a good long life, and we went back for a memorial. And one of the things that happens, um, if you haven't been to your hometown in a while, I, I bet this happens for you if you go, is you go by places and see things that start bringing back all sorts of memories. Anybody else have this happen? Sometimes it's good, right? Like it's good memories. Sometimes it's hard memories. Um, we drove by my high school the other day on the way to lunch after um, the memorial. And for some reason, we drove by my high school, uh, which is now the middle school because they built a bright, shiny, happy new high school for all the, like, like two years after I graduated. Um, not bitter. Um, <laughs> and we drove by the school, and I had this memory that came back to me of something that happened my senior year. Uh, it was of a specific teacher who really just gave me one of the best gifts I think I've ever been given in my life. Her name was Miss Hunt, and she was a math teacher. Um, now, what you need to know about me and my story is I don't like math. I don't like math at all. Um, I get how this plus this equals this, but when you bring letters into it, I just think you're doing something wrong. Um, it's not how things should work. Leave letters alone. They, they work fine by themselves. And so I just, I was always struggled in math, but I found myself in Miss Hunt's pre-cal class. Now, you may be wondering, what's a student like me? Not a very good student. What's a student like me doing in pre-cal when we're just trying to get out of here? Well, apparently there is this thing called a gold seal diploma. Does anybody have this where you're from? And essentially what it means is you take a certain extra few classes that are a little harder, and they, when you get your diploma, they put a little gold seal on it. Means nothing. Doesn't get you anything like tuition-wise for college. It's literally a sticker. You could have bought those little star stickers and put whatever color you wanted all over your diploma. It would have had the same significance. But for some reason, we were convinced I needed this on my diploma. And so I go and I take pre-cal and I just know it's going to be a disaster. In the first couple of times, the first couple of exams, it, I was exactly right. It was a disaster. But I have to tell you about Miss Hunt because she was and is a dear human being. And she, for some reason, believed in me. Um, she thought I could do it. And so she did something that I, it's hard for teachers to do, especially when they have larger classrooms, is she would spend time with me. When I would turn in work and get stuff wrong, she would tell me what I got wrong and show me how to do it differently. She spent so much time and energy encouraging me, letting me know that I was capable, that this thing in my brain that said I couldn't do it was not true, and that I absolutely could do it if I was willing to work hard and to just keep practicing. And so we kept doing that for an entire semester, my last semester of high school. And uh, that last, we, we were graded on nine-week periods. The last nine weeks in her class, I got an A in pre-cal because Miss Hunt invested in me, encouraged me, believed in me. When I messed up, she didn't like throw in the towel on me. She just kept saying, you can do this. And then at awards night, something very unexpected happened. I mean, I didn't expect to get any awards, to be honest with you. I, I didn't even get a perfect attendance award. And so I just didn't expect to get much. And uh, she got up to give the math awards, and she started talking about an award for the most improved in math. And she starts talking about this person who's going to get this award. And I'm like, well, who is that person? Um, and then she called my name. 
And I got this little trophy that now proves that at one point in the spring of 1999, I was the most improved person in the world, I believe is what it said, <laughs> in mathematics. It was a global achievement award is what I'm choosing to call it on my resume. And I just remember walking up to get that award and just being kind of dumbfounded that I even was there getting that award because uh, if, if she had not believed in me, if she had not encouraged me, if she hadn't kept telling me, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, I never would have done it. I would have flunked the class. I would have probably gotten the D minus I was aiming for and gotten out of there. And yet she taught me a lesson about not only um, hard work, but about who I actually was and what I could actually do if I was willing to believe in myself like she believed in me. And then, so we got back from this trip on like Thursday night and I had to dig out my yearbook because I know that she wrote something in it that was memorable. And by the way, you're, when you get your teachers to sign your yearbook, you're probably not super cool. I wanna, I wanna show you exactly where I was at. That was the guy. I mean, I was, the way I like to describe it is if Jim Carrey's character Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber and Lurch from the Adams Family had a love child. It's that kid. Super awkward, unsure, like my body grew faster than my ability to control it. Um, just just not, the, not the picture of confidence, not the picture. And she believes in me. And so I go dig out this, you can take that away now, uh, uh, permanently. And I go home and I go to the attic and I start digging through and I find this yearbook. And I open up this yearbook and I read this really lovely thing she wrote. And she didn't just write about what a good job I'd done in math. She talked about what kind of human being I was and how lucky she was to know me and how much it meant to her to have me in class. And I was like, my goodness. Um, it was just the greatest gift that I could have been given as a 17-year-old kid who was kind of awkward and unsure and not really good at math. That this person who was somebody I looked up to believed in me and invested in me in that kind of way. Uh, you may be asking, what does that have to do with the Christmas story? You're going to have to wait for that for just a minute. Uh, there, there are people all over the world today in churches, um, and they're going to churches, and um, they're being taught and are kind of assuming that the message and meaning of Christmas is kind of a specific thing, and it goes like this. We humans are so broken and depraved and awful that God had to send their own son into the world to be tortured and killed to make us right with God. That Christmas is ultimately a time to be reminded that we can't, that we are fatally flawed, how irreparably broken and damaged and incapable we are, right? That's essentially the message. You are so bad that God can't even be near you without some, something bleeding. You are so bad. You are so broken. That's how often the Christmas story is introduced to us, that it's about a fundamental flaw in us is why Jesus came into the world, because God needed help. Um, because when you want something done right, you do it yourself. Um, and we clearly couldn't, so God did. I no longer see that. I did for a long time. But I no longer see that to be the meaning of Christmas at all. To recap sort of the Christmas, where we get the Christmas story, there are only two versions of the Christmas story in all of the Bible. It seems like a holiday this big would have had like 10 versions of it, but there are actually only two. One is in Matthew, one is in Luke. Matthew was written in the 80s. Um, and then Luke was written probably in the early decades of the second century, which means when Luke wrote Luke's story, Luke likely had Matthew's. And Luke read Matthew's story and thought, I can do better, and said, hold my eggnog. And then Luke <laughs> writes a completely different story than Matthew's because Luke had different agenda. 
Otherwise, we don't really, Paul has this one mention that Jesus was born of woman, born under the law, which means he was a Jewish human being, which um, isn't all that radical. And then there's this writer named John. And John understands, okay, there are these stories out there about Jesus' birth, but they didn't go back far enough. And John says, if you want to understand the story of Jesus, you don't go back to when he was born. You go back to the beginning of everything. You go back to the birth of the cosmos. And John begins John's gospel, John's story of Jesus, by talking about this reality, this reality from which everything came, this energy. He uses the word logos in Greek. It gets translated in English as word, but it doesn't mean just like a word. It has this sort of dynamic. It's like the thing that holds it, that brings everything into existence and holds it all together. It's the energy, the hum, the, the reverence. It's the thing within everything that makes it all matter, right? And John says that something interesting happened in the life of this Jesus person, that for John, this Jesus person, in this Jesus person, this reality entered the world in some way. Here's what he says in John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and lived among us. The divine creative energy. I love Eugene Peterson's The Message on this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Uh, creative license, great. Like the, I just love the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. John understands the Jesus story to be this sort of um, bigness entering in some sort of small human. I mean, Jesus enters the world, not in John's gospel. We don't get this, but we're pretty sure we know that when Jesus was born, he was a baby. <laughs> That's how we all start, right? And for John, this, is, this has some pretty specific implications about who Jesus was and also about who we are. So Jesus spends the entire Gospel of John performing these miraculous signs that point to his larger purpose and meaning. And then at the end, toward the end of the Gospel, Jesus knows his time is about up. And so he wants to prepare his followers to be without him because they're so used to being with him, they're so used to being able to go to him that he wants them to be ready for his absence. And one of the things he says to them in John 14 as he's about to leave them, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, they will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And this is what Jesus says to these disciples in John's gospel. I'm, gonna, I'm about to peace out, but here's the good news. All the stuff you've seen me do, you can do. And you can actually do greater things than this. Quick recap. Jesus' first sign in the gospel of John is turning water into wine. Anybody done that lately? Anybody just going to fill your bathtub up on Christmas and hope that like it just something happens, like that that's how it's going to work? I mean, Jesus in the Gospel of John, he, he restores sight to the blind. He walks on water. He feeds the multitude. He does all of this stuff. And he says to the disciples and, and to us, um, look, here's the thing. I know you think this was cool. You can do greater things than this. Which means at the end of John's Gospel, what we get from Jesus is a massive vote of confidence in us. That the Jesus story is not a, if you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself story. That the Jesus story is something else. The word that gets used for this event in theology is the word incarnation. It, it literally means to be in flesh. That in Jesus, God somehow is enfleshed in the world. And what Jesus keeps insisting throughout this Gospel of John is that the same thing he's doing and experiencing is not uh, unique to him. It's not isolated to him, but it's a thing that is true of and possible for every human being. 
John's understanding of the Jesus story is not that the Jesus story is about how bad it is to be human. It's actually the opposite. The story of the incarnation is an invitation to find divinity within humanity. It's an invitation to see and touch divinity within our human experience. And by the way, this isn't a new idea. It isn't a Christian innovation. It's not some sort of like new age progressive thing we're doing to try to make it sound different than it actually is. The tradition that gave birth to Jesus, the Jewish tradition, which Jesus was Jewish his entire life, that tradition begins with a creation story. And in that creation story, um, God constructs creation in chapter one of Genesis like a temple. And one of the things in the ancient world, after you built a temple that you would do is you would take an image of the God, like an idol or statue, you would take an image and you would place it in the temple to represent the God. In Genesis, God creates creation like a temple and then God places humans in it and they are God's image bearers in the temple of creation. Before there was religion in this story, before there were particular different religions, the whole, this story begins with just humans. And these humans are God's image bearers, God's representatives, God's presence in and to the world. I think this means a lot of things. First, this means that God actually values humanity that God affirms our potential, that God affirms our inherent goodness, that God affirms the possibilities of what we can actually do in the world. That to be human is not a problem to be solved. It is a gift to be celebrated. To be human is not a thing you need to apologize for. How many of you do this on a regular basis? You do something you're like, well, I'm only what? Yeah, you don't say, well, I'm only a pterodactyl. Like, that's not where you go with it. You're like, I'm only human, as if your humanity is the reason. And I think sometimes some of the problems we get ourselves into is not when we're being human, it's when we're maybe opting to live beneath our good humanity, when we're behaving in ways that dehumanize ourselves and other people. That's absolutely true. To say that we are born inherently good is not to say that we're born perfect. It's not to say that we don't have problems. It doesn't, it's not to say that we don't have room to grow and lessons to learn and places to change and change our mind, change our, all of that's very, very, very true. I think part of what Christmas means is that God isn't some external being to be appeased, right? God isn't out there just watching us disapprovingly, sees you when you're sleeping, knows. God isn't, just creepily staring at you, waiting for you to mess up and disapproving of you. God is not an external being to be appeased, but a reality and a permeating presence to be experienced and with which we are invited to participate right here, right now. That's what Jesus is talking about. You'll do greater things. How? Why? Because this same thing I'm tapped into, you're tapped into. You've just been told your entire life that you're disconnected from it. It's almost like this. Somebody gives you a lamp. You plug in the lamp. They never tell you where the on switch is, so you just think the lamp doesn't work. And then somebody shows you the on switch, and you're like, boom, light. That's what Jesus is doing for these disciples. And that's, I think, our work today is to go to human beings who have been told how bad they are their entire lives and say, no, you just haven't been shown where the on switch is. Everything you need is within you. Because God, the one in whom we live, move, and exist, is within you. Jesus is inviting us to see that humanity and divinity are not oil and water. They're more like bread and wine. They're something that goes together, right? There's something that can be experienced at the same 
time. I also think the story of Christmas, the story of the incarnation, is a radical affirmation that to be human is to be, is to, is to be a good thing. To be human is good. It's to be celebrated. It's to be lived into. There's this idea in communication and in advertising that the medium is the message. How many of you heard this before? That it's not just what you're saying, but what conveys the message becomes part of the message. Like it isn't this clean thing where I'm just, you know, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That's not how this works. The medium and the message get connected. And if that's true, if, God, if Jesus is, is something that God is saying to the world, to us, the medium is the message. That God says the thing God wants to say to us, not through ripping open the heavens and saying, y'all behave, because God clearly would use y'all. Um, y'all play nice. God could, or that God could, you know, Thanos the whole thing if you're a Marvel fan and just make everything. That's not how this, the way God's message is communicated is through a flesh and blood person who goes to other flesh and blood people and says, not just me, but you too. Not just me. It has been far easier for us to stop and worship Jesus than to actually take his message seriously and actually follow him and believe what he said about us to believe that we're enough, to believe that our humanity is not a problem to be overcome, but it is our greatest strength. To be human is a good thing. The story of Christmas, the story of Jesus, I think is a celebration of human possibility. Look what we can do. Look who we can become. Look at the unbelievable ways we can live our lives in generosity Pursuing justice and truth and compassion. Look at, look at, for every bad problem in the world, and there are some real bad problems in the world, where human beings are behaving poorly, behaving subhumanly, there are example after example of human beings behaving in beautiful. I've seen it myself just this week, people in our community doing really beautiful things under the radar, untold for other human beings. And those stories, for all the bad stories out there, those stories I get to see of people digging deep within their humanity and being so moved that they can only overflow in love for other people, I think that's the actual good news. I think that's the actual story. Like last week, I mentioned my favorite Christmas hymn is Oh Holy Night. Um, there's, we're going to sing that in just a bit. But there's another line in that story that I really have come to love, and I don't know how I missed it for like 40-some years. <laughs> And it's this line, the soul felt its worth. The soul felt its worth. I can remember hearing people leave church in in younger years and say, if I leave church and I don't feel bad about myself, then I probably haven't been preached to. We bought into this thing that the whole purpose is to come and to be told how terrible we are, to have more guilt and more shame heaped upon us. that's That's the good news of Christmas. You're awful. How's that good news? The soul felt its worth. Maybe the mark of good religion, maybe the mark of good church service, maybe the mark of anything to do with with anything is not that when people leave, they feel worse about themselves and worse about their possibility and potential. Maybe, just maybe, the way you measure good religion is that people walk away feeling like more is possible. That maybe they could get an A in pre-cal that maybe, just maybe, through partnering with God and other human beings, they can move the needle for at least one person in their world. 
What if people left religious gatherings all over the world today and were reminded of how beloved, how beautiful, how important, how powerful, how unbelievably fortunate the world is that they're in it? Because that's true for every single one of you and every person who's listening to this and every person who isn't. Richard Rohr put it like this. In Jesus' birth, God was already saying that it was good to be human and God was on our side. It's good to be human. And God is on our side. It's as if God has placed all of their eggs in one basket. And I realize I'm messing up holiday metaphors here. Um, but just give me this. I mean, Easter is the big Christian holiday, so let me slip it in just a little bit. Um, but God is placing all of God's best hopes, all of God's dreams, all of God's desires for justice and compassion and goodness, that God is placing every single one of those eggs in one basket. And that basket is humanity. And that if God is going to change the world, it is not going to be for an outside intervention from, as from somebody who's not from me. It's going to be for a ground-up movement of living, breathing, divine image-bearing human beings who join God in the work of making the world what it could be. Amen. I think that God has bet the farm on us. I don't think God has any regrets. Anybody ever placed a bet that you were worried about? Yeah, Okay. Shame on you. I'm kidding. <laughs> we condone betting as long as there's, you know, generosity at the end of it. Um, no, there have been times, you know, there have been times you, you sort of, like I made this, we haven't done this yet, and I made this bet with our oldest, I don't know where he is, that I could beat him running a mile. I still think I could, but we made some pretty significant bets. Like the way, I can't remember what it was, but I remember thinking at the time, like if I lose this, this is bad, um, so let's just maybe not do it, right? Like, I don't think God has ever once flinched. I think God looks at humans and knows that we make choices sometimes, that we live beneath our humanity. I don't think God has ever looked at humanity and gone, maybe we should have, it should have been dogs. <laughs> they look way cooler playing poker. Uh, you, you know, like, this should have been dogs. I don't think God has ever, dogs are great. We have a dog, she's amazing sometimes. But I don't think God has ever looked at us and had buyer's remorse. I think God has always placed God's eggs in that basket. I think Christmas means that God isn't sitting back demanding that humans believe in God, that God is somewhere in the universe pouting because not enough people believe in God. I think Christmas is God declaring that God has always believed in us and always will believe in us. It turns out, really, that God is an awful lot like Nassant. Or maybe she's a lot like God. Either way, I think it's really, really good news. That when the divine engages with humanity, it, it, it is not God lowering God's self to our level. It is God inviting us to see that our level has always been higher than we've imagined or dared to believe. That more is possible through us than we ever thought imaginable. I think that is the good news of the Christmas story. I think that is the good news of the Jesus story. And my hope is that as today we light that fifth, you see that obnoxiously large candle that clearly wants to be seen more than the others? Um, that's the Christ candle. On, so today's the last Sunday of Advent, but it's also Christmas Eve, so we light two candles today. And that Christ candle is a way of celebrating that the season of Advent, which is about waiting and longing and hoping, 
that the, the moment, the pregnancy is about to end and birth is about to begin, that this is the thing that's happening, the Christ candle God with us. But I also want you to see that as representative of Jesus, our brother, and also all of his siblings, that Christ has never left the world, that he continues to show up in his body, which is your body and my body and everybody, (laughs) that he continues to meet us in the world. And my hope is we light this fifth candle and as we prepare ourselves to light all of our candles and to sing together, is that at the culmination of this Advent and at the beginning of Christmas, that we will open our hearts to hope, the hope that anything is possible. With us and the divine, anything is possible. That we will make space for peace and that we'll commit ourselves to become peacemakers in the world. That we will realize that what the poet Mary Oliver said, that joy is not meant to be a crumb and that it is okay to celebrate the goodness and beauty of life right in the middle of the muck and mire of life that love ultimately is the reason for our existence and there is no better reason for our existence than that we are born to be loved and to love. And my great hope is that your soul will fill its worth, every single ounce of it, because you are beloved, you are beautiful, you bear the divine image, and that's the good news of Christmas. (laughs) 